Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. from uh, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you so much. Please be seated. It's good to see all of you in our study of the revelation from and of Jesus Christ. 
I have been immersing myself in the reading and listening of this book, and I can tell you it gives us a good story. I know by reading the book continually that Jesus Christ has won, is winning, and will win. That should put a smile on our faces. If you are in any way attuned to current events, it is encouraging to know that right now Jesus Christ is reclaiming what is rightfully his as creator-redeemer through these signs and wonders. So let us, in the midst of all this, be encouraged because Jesus Christ is indeed coming. What is John doing in the book of Revelation? John is, as it were, separating the veil, and he's allowing us to see what is happening behind the scenes. You and I live in a world of tribulation. We are in tribulation. And yet God, through the tribulation, is reclaiming what is rightfully his as creator-redeemer. And as Pastor John is exiled on an island because of his faith in Christ Jesus, he writes to a church persecuted and he encourages them through these comforting words. God is winning. God is winning. So throughout these visions that we read, John uses apocalyptic language in which symbols serve as word pictures of the cosmic struggle between Jesus Christ and his already defeated but ever-defiant foe, the devil. Jesus Christ is winning. One of the desires that I have this morning is to lay the groundwork for our study of the next two chapters, which are Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Most of us are aware of the fact that the Apostle John is writing this letter to seven churches. Those seven churches are listed in the book several times. If we look at chapter 1, verse 4, we've just heard it read, but let me simply point it out for us. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He repeats that same idea found in verse 11 saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then in verse 20 of the same chapter, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. He will be repeating that idea seven times in the next two chapters. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the Apostle John writes to these seven churches. If you were to look at a map, you would see that there's a logical progression from one city to the next city. Many suggest that this is the mail route that would be taken, and thus John writes to Ephesus, and then he simply follows through the mail route. So we are looking at the letters to the seven churches. But let me give you six initial observations concerning the seven churches. And I'm going to try to do this in a very succinct manner, and I think we can succeed. But there's a logical progression in every single one of the letters that is repeated seven times inside the next two chapters. You have a commission to the angels. If we were to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and every other letter throughout these two chapters, we would see this pattern repeat itself. There's a commission to the angel, to the angel of the church in Then you have this descriptive, which is very important, concerning the character of Christ. You have the commending of the church or the correcting. You have this either a statement of praise and or problem within that specific church based on that geographical location or city and church. 
And then you have this statement, this promise from the Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And then you have a statement, and all of them follow the same format, to the one who overcomes. I will deal with the idea of overcoming thoroughly, I trust, in the days ahead. But the idea is that there is a promise given to the one who does overcome in each of these locations. So, the first thing we note of the seven letters is that they follow a consistent pattern. You have the process of transmission. It goes from the angel, which I will explain in a moment. I do believe they are angelic beings and not pastors, although that's highly debated. It doesn't necessarily matter. However, I think there is a a noted pattern within the book of Revelation that we will consider. But there's a process of transmission. Then the person of Christ is celebrated, the praise and or problem within the church proper, and then the promise from the Spirit to the one who overcomes. That pattern is going to repeat itself seven times. The second thing is this that we'll see throughout. But if there is no Jesus, there is no church. If there is no Jesus... There is no church. In the absence of Jesus, there is no church. If the gospel is lost, the church is lost. What we will see, even in the connection between chapters 1 and 2, 2 and 3, and then chapters 4 and 5, is simply this. Jesus isn't just the center, but the very source of the church. If we do not hold fast to the gospel, the church as we know it will be lost in this geographical location. If we absent Jesus from our discussion and language and vocabulary, the church is indeed lost. Now, you can have a building where people gather, but it might not be a church. Because what makes the church a church is Jesus. What makes the church a church is the gospel. There are three reasons as to why I say this. If you were to read chapter 1, which we just did, and then you were to read chapters 2 and 3, you would see that the word concerning Jesus given to each of the seven churches is tied directly to chapter 1. So the descriptive in chapter 1 is repeated seven times, certain unique elements or aspects to the seven churches in those seven cities. So chapters 2 and 3 are based on the description found in chapter 1. Overlaying all of this because of the repeating pattern that we see are the descriptions of God in chapters 4 and 5. But chapters 1, 2, and 3 are connected, and we need to see how chapter 1 is the source for what is then going to be said in chapters 2 and 3. The second thing showing how Jesus and the church are inseparably linked is this idea of the garden imagery that's found throughout. You'll remember in chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis, the text reads, They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That imagery is repeated then in chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation. It says to the angel of church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, as we explain the symbolism that's found inside this letter, it becomes, I trust, even more clear. But the one who is walking in the garden is equally walking among the churches. 
That same idea is seen in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 of Revelation, where it says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. I will explain later on how the lampstand imagery of the church speaks to the idea of the menorah or the tree of life that's in the tabernacle temple. How is imaging the tree of life in the garden in Eden? So all that imagery, all that symbolism is pointing us back to something. But there is this inseparable link between Jesus and the church. Jesus is holding and walking among his churches for their joy in his glory. And this imagery carries forward when Revelation speaks of the tree of life, when it speaks of the paradise of God. All of that language is imaging for us the connection between Jesus and his church, the garden God and Jesus and the church. Thus, as we can say, in the absence of Jesus, there is no church. We can equally say, in the absence of Jesus, there is no garden. Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the church. And then thirdly, finally, when we look at the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that is what causes the church to exist. If you look at chapter 1, verse 5, you've already heard this, but it says and describes Jesus as the ruler of the kings on earth, And then to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, how? By his blood. Revelation 5, 9. By your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that idea is stated throughout the book of Revelation. So the first thing we can note and should note is that there is a repeating pattern to all seven churches. Secondly, the descriptive of Christ to the seven churches is tied to chapter 1. And it's very intentional. It wants us to understand and see that in the absence of Jesus, in absence of the gospel, the church ceases to exist. The most precious and important thing we have is Jesus. Because Jesus is the gospel. We see these commercials and it describes what is truly priceless Well, Jesus Christ is truly priceless. He is the one thing we have that the world does not have but needs. That is our unique contribution to the community in which we live. Our presence, the gospel, Jesus, is what our world needs today. And the only way our world will ever change is when Jesus shows up. When you think of Jesus and you think of the church, the relationship between these two are sequential. Jesus precedes church and inseparable. In order to have the church, you must have Jesus. He is the causation of what we have here. And Revelation, the structure of it, chapter 1 and then 2 and 3, tie 2 and 3 directly to Jesus. He is not only the center of the church, but its very source. In his absence we no longer have a church. So as we think of the seven letters, the dominant idea is that it's giving to us a revelation of Jesus Christ. The third thing, this morning as we think of chapters 2 and 3, as we think of the church, is that tribulation is a part of the church's story. Tribulation is a part of the church's story. The church in Revelation 2 and 3 is in tribulation. And it is in the tribulation that the church is called to hold fast. The church is called 
to persevere. So what is the word that we bring to the church in Ukraine? Hold fast, persevere, be encouraged, be comforted. Why? Behold, I am coming. And it is through this tribulation that God is reclaiming what is rightfully his as creator and redeemer. And thus, Pastor John writes to a suffering church, and he calls them to persevere, to steadfastness. Their loyalty to Christ is challenged by their tribulation. And the issue is always fundamentally a call to gospel loyalty, to gospel purity, to gospel affection. And in this area, all churches struggle. And regardless of the symptoms that's noted in each of the seven churches. So as we read the seven churches, we will see that there is a reoccurring problem or a problem that exists that is unique to their geographical location. But all of the problems are symptoms. The underlying condition or cause is always the same in all seven churches. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. As we change our relationship to Jesus, as we change the messaging of the gospel, we are affecting the church. Because there is no church where there is no Jesus. And as we look at the seven letters we must note that that church being addressed is in tribulation. If we were to look at all the occurrences of this idea in the book of Revelation, that's why I would encourage you to pick up the fuller manuscript in the foyer. But in chapter 1, verse 9, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10 you will have tribulation. Chapter 2, verse 13, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful martyr who was killed among you. Chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 7. This pattern is repeated throughout the book of Revelation. He writes to a people who are being persecuted. He writes to a people who are in tribulation. He writes to people that because of their faith in Jesus are being killed. He writes to a church in tribulation. This is found throughout not just the book of Revelation, but also in the New Testament. We know that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The pattern repeats itself throughout the New Testament. In John's Gospel, the 16th chapter, the 33rd verse, I have said these things to you, speaking to his disciples in the upper room just prior to the cross, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that the message we do need to hear today? You can have peace even as the world around us collapses. I am as frustrated as you are with everything I hear on the news. You would think that COVID and Canada and our southern border doesn't even exist in light of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, right? I don't care where you sit on all that. That's just obvious. Jesus says to his church, You know what? In the midst of all this, you can have peace. You can have peace. You walk around going, I am going to lose my, whatever is left of it, I'm going to lose it. But Jesus says to his church, in this world right now, what are you going to have? Tribulation. 
But, listen, this is the message of Revelation. John says it in his 16th chapter, 33rd verse. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be encouraged. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. To him who overcomes, we will find ourselves in the paradise of God. And I'll bring that out from Revelation. So the Apostle John, Pastor John, calls a church in tribulation to hold fast, to persevere, to don't quit, to stay the course, keep believing in Jesus. And I would argue vehemently that that is the same message that you and I need to hear today. Because all we hear are lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Hey, lift up your eyes. Behold, I am coming. I am coming. As we look at the letters, we will see a repeating pattern. They follow a template, a script. We also see that Jesus Christ is dominant. He is predominant. Whatever is said of him in chapter 1 is repeated in chapters 2 and 3. Why? Because in the absence of Jesus, there is no church. If we at any time abandon the gospel... This church at Glendale in 164, this gathering will cease to exist. We could still come, but in the absence of gospel, we are simply lipstick on a pig. Thus, we hold fast to the gospel. The fourth thing we see inside of this letter, the repeating pattern, is the statement to the angel of the church in Ephesus. It's repeated seven times in each of the seven letters. To the angel, who is this individual identified as an angel? Now, I will argue that the angel is an angel, and what is meant by that? The initial recipients of the letters, as found in the seven letters, are the angels as messengers, and then to the pastors of the church and churches. And why do I believe that these are angelic beings as opposed to pastors? I think pastors are a part of that transmission. But when we read angels in chapter 2, verse 1, I think they are angels, angelic beings. And although the word angel occurs in 72 verses in Revelation, so if you were to take a strong concordance or pop up your Bible concordance or your computer concordance and hit that thing, it would occur in 72 verses. And nowhere in the book of Revelation is the word translated messenger or pastor. In Revelation, it is never anything other than an angelic being. It is possible that chapters 2 and 3 are the exception to the rule. However, I would argue, because of what we see in chapter 1, verse 1, when we speak of the revelation from Jesus, it comes from God the Father to Jesus to his servants, to angels, to John, and then to the churches. Pastors are a part of that lineage, that transmission. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it says it went to the angel. The assumption I would then make based on Revelation 1, 1, is that it went from the angel to the pastors of those churches, and then from the pastors to the churches. Is this a big deal? Not necessarily. I'm just endeavoring to be faithful to the passage text or idea. And part of this is, do I believe that there are supernatural forces at play as we gather every Sunday? And the answer is an emphatic yes. 
angelic activity is all around us. And the purpose of John, part of his purpose, is to awaken us to the realities that are actually taking place. Because you and I are caught at this level, aren't we? Every push and pull. But there's something else going on, and that's what John wants us to see. Something else is going on. Angelic activity is all around us. Angelic activity is never something we seek, but should be assumed. Right now, there's a whole other world transpiring around us, and they coexist, and both are real. Now, I mentioned to us that there is this progression. The dominant idea is that we hold fast to Christ, that we keep the gospel central. It went from the angel to the pastors of this church. And why? Because the pastors are the guardians of the gate. They are the ones that are to be guarding the gospel gate. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Listen to the language that Paul uses when communicating to the elders in Ephesus. And we're going to get there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But listen to his language. He says to the elders, to the pastors of the church, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. I believe that the gospel, I believe Jesus, when I use those two words this morning, they are synonymous. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. I believe that the message we have in Revelation is all about Jesus. I believe that the messenger... The angel brings it to the pastor, the pastor to the fellowship. What is he bringing? He's bringing gospel. In Acts chapter 20, 28 through 31, the pastors are the ones protecting the gate. They are the ones who have formed the line, they have drawn the line, and they are supposed to hold the line. We're supposed to hold the line. What happens if we don't hold the line? Listen to what it says. Arise people speaking twisted things. We start going awry. If we just veer a little bit, what happens in time? We're way off in wonderland. We have to hold the line. And why is that so? Well, the church is always in danger of gospel drift. Always. In our past studies, we have learned that an assumed gospel in time becomes a distorted gospel and in time becomes no gospel at all. And here's what's interesting concerning the seven churches that are addressed in Asia Minor. And this is a discussion that we're having on a regular basis. Christian presence in Turkey is almost next to nothing. And in those seven churches, the gospel witness as it existed in the first century is almost non-existent. What happened Gospel drift. What happened? They stopped holding the line. We have to hold the line. I trust this isn't coming as a surprise for us, but we're going to see that in all seven letters. 
hold the line. It doesn't matter what the symptom is. It's always gospel-related. All the good that can be done becomes the enemy of the best that must be done. Be careful, guard the gospel. And what you win them with is what you win them to. Guard the gospel. Why? Because there is always gospel drift. And thus the message comes from the angel to the pastor to the church. And the message is always a Christocentric, gospel-centric message. Hold fast to Christ, even as you are being challenged by tribulation. The fifth thing we see before walking in the study of the two chapters is that the symbolism of the church is a lampstand. I think this stuff is so cool. The church repeatedly, and we've already seen it, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we have that repeating pattern of the church being identified as a lampstand. Now, why is this so? In short order, the lampstand was the historic menorah. The menorah was representing the tree of life. The tree of life is back in the garden in Eden. We have heard, and hopefully those dots will start connecting, how the tabernacle is an image. It's imaging the garden in Eden. The temple images, and it brings all that forward so that the people of God were always being reminded of the presence of God. And when they come to the tabernacle, when they come to the temple, when they come to church, they're encountering the living God. That's what we do collectively as the gathered people of God. And what is equally interesting, why did they need candlelight in the tabernacle? Because it didn't come with windows. The menorah, the lampstand, illuminates. What does it illuminate? It illuminates in a dark place. You know what our world needs right now? You know what Waukesha County needs right now? This church and all churches. Because we stand as Christocentric places, as light in a dark place. But what is the one thing we have that they need? Jesus. You're like, are you kidding? No, it's Jesus. He is the good news to a world in which we live. So the church is described as a lampstand. The lampstand is to remind us that the church is the garden in shadow form. And we are a light in a dark place. We are a place where people come to encounter the living God. That image is necessary. And you know what we need more of? Churches that are preaching the gospel. And pastors who hold the line. Hold the line. Don't give in. Don't give up. And the other thing that we're going to see, which I think is so cool, especially as you read the letter... Now, look at chapter 2 with me for a moment. And I just want to read for you this repeating pattern. It's found in verses 7 and 8. It's found in verses 7 and 8. And you have this in the conclusion of every letter. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. 
Not just then, but now. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And again, notice the garden imagery that's being used. It's repeated in the tabernacle, repeated in the temple, and now is to be repeated through the symbolism of the church. But notice what you see or read or hear. To the one who overcomes, it almost seems to be suggesting that it's possible that you won't overcome, that you will not be victorious. And and what is really, really interesting about the structure that's embedded inside of Revelation is that every one of the overcome statements in chapters 2 and 3, are you with me right now? So at the end of every letter, you have a repeating pattern to the, one who has, to the one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then it has this formula to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. And each of the promises changes based on the church. But every single one of the promises, this is all so cool. Every one of the promises to the seven churches is repeated and fulfilled in chapters 19 through 22 where we see the garden of God reestablished on earth as it is in heaven. Every one of the promises comes to pass that are stated in chapters 2 and 3 come to pass in chapters 19 through 22. The exact same wording is used. It's repeated. Here's where we start. Here is where we finish. So how in the world, in the midst of tribulation, how do we get from where we are to where we will be? Oh, this is what's cool. Remember, I don't expect you to. That's why I'm repeating myself. But remember that the book of Revelation is laid out through repeating patterns. There's pictures of contrast. If there is good stated, what should we expect to hear? bad. If there's sin, righteousness. We see this repeating pattern. In Revelation chapter 13, go there with me. I want you to see this. And I think this is big. I've repeated this already once before. I've referenced it. I've called your attention to it. I'm going to keep doing it, especially when we get to this passage. But notice chapter 13. Notice verses 17 and 18. so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. One of the things that we have gotten caught up with is this idea that we could inadvertently receive the mark of the beast. And we've talked about this. We've talked about this. So we are perhaps somewhat concerned that in in our era, if Jesus tarries at 2,000 years, there's going to be a reoccurring of this idea. I mentioned that there's always a picture of contrast. And so we get wrapped up with 666. And we think, well, the mark of the beast. However, if there's a mark of the beast, what else should I then be thinking if, if it holds? There's also a contrasting picture. What is the contrasting picture? Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, now notice, who had his name, and I've not proven it yet. I can, I've done the work, 
But the idea of the people of God having the sealing of God on their forehead is repeated throughout Revelation. I mean, isn't that cool? Okay? Notice, 144,000. And again, if you say, well, it's only the 144,000, again, I can show you, and you can do this yourself. Look up forehead. It's only once used outside of Revelation. Look up forehead, and you'll see it repeated throughout the book of Revelation. Who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. If you go back to chapter 7, and they have the 144,000, and it says that the 144,000 are sealed. Here's the cool thing. Just as the unbelieving have their father's seal on their forehead, so the believing have on our head our father's name and seal. Woo, woo, woo. Yeah. How do I get from chapters 2 and 3 in the midst of tribulation and all the challenges that we face on a regular basis? How do the people in these persecuted countries get from 2 and 3 to 21 and 22? The sealing of the Spirit. Oh, man. I might wash up on the shores of heaven as a broken boat, but I am going to wash up on the shores of heaven. Not because of what I have done, but because of what he did. This is so cool. Listen to what Paul says. Because I, and I've looked at this, and the messaging is consistent. This is so cool. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of... Oh, man. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, all synonymous ideas, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know what you and I have right now on our foreheads and hands and hearts? The name of our Father in Jesus Christ, His Son. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what it says. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is what's so cool. It can't be accidental who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Chapters 21 and 22. Until we acquire possession of it. We are the churches in tribulation. We are faced with challenges, gospel challenges, Jesus challenges. But hold fast, persevere. Why? Because you have been sealed by the Spirit. The Father's name is on your forehead. His name has been written. And you will receive the inheritance. You will take possession of what is described in 22 and 21. So even while we live in tribulation, we must understand how God is even now reclaiming what is rightfully His as Creator, Redeemer. And He's doing it through signs and wonders. This is what is ours. It's guaranteed. It's not, hey, be strong. And I, I would encourage you, be strong, hold fast. Don't quit, persevere. But we are being challenged in tribulation. And what guarantee do we have that chapters 21 and 22 will come to pass? The sealing. Now, what is interesting in Revelation, we'll, we'll get there, but the sealing is only used of the Spirit. The mark is only used of the beast. It is impossible for you as the people of God 
to receive the mark. The unbelieving are already marked, but the believing are equally already sealed. You're going to get there. So what do we do with all this as we walk into chapters 2 and 3? First, in the absence of Jesus, there's no church. Hold fast to Jesus. In the absence of the gospel, if the gospel is lost, the church is lost. Secondly, tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom is a part of the church's story. You know that to be true. And in tribulation, the church is called to persevere, to hold fast. Thirdly, church leadership must guard the gospel. Let us make that easy. We must heed Paul's counsel in Acts 20, 28-31. And why is this so? Because when leadership, when leadership goes bad, churches go bad. Hold fast to the gospel. The symbolism of the church being a lampstand is intentional. We are in shadow form in our community, a place of encounter. We are, as the gathered church, a light in a dark place. The light we shine is Jesus, is the gospel. And finally, folks, and I trust you picked it up, be encouraged because the Holy Spirit is your guarantee that the promises of 21 and 22 will indeed come to pass. Behold, he is coming. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the words of revelation. I thank you not only that they are from Jesus, but of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that your people have been sealed by the Spirit and that he is our guarantee that we will receive the inheritance that all your promises are amen in Christ. Father, may we be encouraged. We are not blind to the brokenness that exists all around us. But the only correction will be when Jesus comes. In this moment, may this church be a light in a dark world. May we shine Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen.